Hello, friends. It's uh, great to be with you again teaching Bible, studying Bible together. And we are going to uh, finish looking at the book of Revelation. We're looking at chapters 19 through 22, which in many ways forms the climax of the book of Revelation. It, uh, in many ways, is a standalone segment, section of the book of Revelation. So um, it's a good study, a self-contained study that we can do for several weeks. And I want to thank you for taking time to listen. I want to thank you for your commitment to serious study of God's Word. I think particularly in these days, this strange time of coronavirus, uh, we will find these concluding chapters of the Bible uh, to be uh, both comforting and challenging. So I'm grateful that you're taking time to do this. Let me remind you of the context of the text. Uh, Up through chapter 18 of the book of Revelation, we have seen how God and God's people have been dealing with uh, a world that doesn't want to receive or accept the ways of God, the kingdom of God. Uh, We have seen through chapter 18, God dealing with the powers, the kingdom, the kingdoms of this world. And we see through chapter 18 uh, that God brings a final destruction to the powers of this world uh, that are represented in uh, the middle section of the book of Revelation as the beast or the Antichrist or the powers uh, that are political, the powers that are falsely religious, that seduce and entice the people of the world away from uh, the true worship of the true God. And the book, in many ways, is encouraging all of God's people to stay true, to stay true to God, to worship God and worship God only, to beware of idolatry, to beware of uh, seeking after strange gods, listening to strange voices, and organizing our lives according to the powers and the principalities of this world. So through chapter 18, uh, we see um, God dealing with the powers of this world. In chapters 19 through 22, which are the final chapters of the book Revelation, we see the climax of history, we see the end of this age, and we see the return of Christ and the judgment and the establishment of the millennial kingdom and the establishment of the eternal kingdom. So we are starting back today at chapter 19. I'll begin reading at the first verse. And we'll study for a while and see how far we can uh, make it in this session. In chapter 19, uh, we see the first uh, five verses connecting us back to what has been going on thus far in the book of Revelation. Uh, with the fall of uh, Babylon, with the fall of the powers of this world that have been prosecuting, persecuting the people of God. So that... Chapter 19 begins uh, with great rejoicing in heaven as a result of the fall of Babylon the Great, as a result of the fall of the powers that have arrayed themselves uh, against God. So chapter 19, verses 1 and following, says this, and I hope you have your Bible in front of you. Verse 1, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, 
Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute, the great harlot, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of the servants. So you see um, uh, the choir of heaven erupting in a grand oratorio here because uh, the, the great prostitute, the great harlot, the powers of this world, they have now fallen. And they begin singing with the word hallelujah, and that's a word that we know well. Uh, because it occurs so often in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, uh, it is a, a transliteration of uh, the Hebrew for praise Yah, for praise God. Uh, it gets transliterated into hallelujah, and uh, it's very common in the Christian community because of its presence in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. Uh, but in the New Testament, this is the only place it occurs. And it occurs uh, five times here in the opening verses of chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. So the choirs of heaven begin by saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The word salvation is the Greek word soteria, which uh, means salvation or deliverance or rescue. It's the work of God in our life, redeeming us, delivering us, rescuing us. So hallelujah, salvation and glory, doxa, from which we get the word doxology, and power, dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite, belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. Everything that you've seen thus far in the book of Revelation, where God deals with the sin and the evil of this world, though it appears harsh to our ears and to our hearts, uh, the choirs of heaven wants us to know that his judgments are true and they're just. Uh, they were warranted because, as verse 2 says, he judged, God judged the great prostitute, which is symbolic of the powers of this age, the powers and principalities of this age, uh, who have done basically two things that have warranted the wrath of God. They, this power, this great prostitute, has corrupted the earth with her immorality, so porneia, immorality, specifically sexual immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So the great prostitute has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has prosecuted, persecuted, martyred many of the servants of God. They continue singing. Verse 3, once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So we'll see a little bit later in chapter 20 that the wrath that falls on the sin and the evil of this world that eventually becomes the image of hell, Gehenna, in the book of Revelation, is an eternal reality. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It's a, a ceaseless, it's an endless uh, suffering as a result of the evil and the sin uh, that they perpetrated here in this world. Verse 4, we experience, we encounter some people that we've uh, noticed several times in the book of Revelation. We've encountered some people that we ran across in the first chapter uh, that uh, populate heaven. Uh, and it says in verse 4, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And as we remember perhaps from earlier in our study of the book of Revelation, these 24 elders symbolize the people of God in heaven. Uh, Twelve 
tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, 24, symbolizing the whole people of God. And the four living creatures symbolize all of creation. So again, it's just a picture of all of heaven worshiping God. The 24 elders, four living creatures fell down and worshiped God. They prostrated themselves and they worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, and you're all ready for this, Amen, Hallelujah. Uh, verse 5, and from the throne came a voice saying, uh, this is probably one of the 24 elders or one of the four living creatures speaking, saying, praise our God. Uh, see the personal pronoun there, our, praise our God. Our God is a personal God. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So here in the first five verses of Revelation 19, you see heaven erupting in praise because the kingdoms of this world have now become or about to become fully the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. So heaven is erupting with hallelujahs at this point. Then in verse 6, we continue to hear uh, the choirs of heaven sing. And we see that they are singing because they are going to announce the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a key concept in the New Testament that's based on many Old Testament passages. Look at the text and we'll talk about it. Verse 6, chapter 19, John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many mighty waters like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns the Almighty is the Greek Pantocrator, the Almighty the Omnipotent uh, that that phrase occurs nine times in the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation wants us to understand that our Lord God is the Pantocrator, he's the Almighty so hallelujah the Lord our God the Almighty reigns, verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Here's the marriage supper. Here's the messianic banquet. Here's the messianic feast. Jesus spoke about it. and There's texts in the Hebrew Bible that point toward it where this union between God and God's people, this eternal, intimate union between God and God's people is presented in the image of a marriage feast. Uh, the marriage of the Lamb that includes this marriage banquet, this wedding banquet. So what we're seeing here at the end of history, the end of the age, when Christ returns, the kingdom is consummated, the marriage of the Lamb with the bride of the Lamb occurs. The Lamb, of course, is Jesus Christ. And the bride of the Lamb, the bride of Jesus Christ, is the people of Jesus Christ. That's why, again, it's pictured in the image of a marriage. Because uh, in the Hebrew Bible, frequently Israel is presented, the people of Israel is presented as the bride of God. When we get into the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians, Paul refers to the church as the bride of Christ. Uh, so here what you see happening in, in beginning in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation is the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb that is going to occur. Let me 
say a few words about marriage in uh, first century Palestine. Let me say a few words about what marriage would have meant to the early Christian community. And this may be a way of reminder to many of us, but might be new for some of us. The way Jewish people, Hebrew people married in the first century looked like this. A man and a woman will be betrothed to each other. Uh, sometimes that was an arranged betrothal. Uh, sometimes that would happen when the man and the woman were very young. Uh, think about Mary being betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal in the Jewish world of the first century uh, meant a whole lot more than just our modern engagement means uh, between a couple. Uh, betrothal was very binding in first century Judaism. That's why when Mary is betrothed to Joseph and she's found to be with child, she is already being referenced there in the early verses of Matthew and Luke as a wife to Joseph. She's not married yet, but she's betrothed. Betrothal has strong legal binding. So in the first century, a man and a woman would be betrothed to each other. Then after the betrothal, the man would go away for an extended period of time uh, to prepare a place for his bride, uh, to prepare a place for his bride to live. Usually that would mean building a room, onto uh, the, the bridegroom's father's home. So the bride would, bridegroom would go away and prepare a place for his bride. That period could last for a long period of time, frequently at least a year, but a long period of time. And then after the, bride was pre- after the bridegroom was prepared, uh, the bridegroom at some point, and it could be a surprise to the bride, would, would go back and receive the bride. To himself, and take the bride to himself, and then after that betrothal, after the place was prepared, uh, a great wedding feast festival would happen. So there's betrothal. There's the period between the betrothal and the marriage, and then there's the marriage. So hopefully already at this point, you're drawing the spiritual analogies uh, between Jesus Christ being the bridegroom and the people of Jesus Christ being the bride. We were betrothed at the first coming of Jesus Christ to Jesus. He is in the process now in the age of the church, in this age of grace, preparing a place for us. And if he prepares a place for us, then he will come again and take us to himself, just as he says in John chapter 14. And then when he comes and takes us to himself... Then the marriage occurs, the marriage banquet, the marriage festival, marriage festivities. And that's what we see happening here at the end of of the book of Revelation, at the end of human history, at the end of the age, as God in Christ prepares to consummate the kingdom of Christ. So that's why they're singing... In heaven, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. I want you to pay close attention to this. This is a beautiful section of Scripture. Notice the marriage of the Lamb has come. It's time for the lamb, the bridegroom, to take the bride. 
And it says here the bride has made herself ready. I suspect you could spiritualize that and say made herself ready through repentance, through faith. Uh, through um, preparing for the relationship. So the bride has made herself ready, but it's not just the issue of the bride making herself ready. Look at verse 8. Therefore, it was granted her, it was granted the bride to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So the bride is readying herself for the marriage. That's what we're doing right now in the church age. We're readying ourselves for the marriage. But it's not just what we do. Verse 8, it was granted her. It was given to her. It was gifted to her. It was graced to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So the fine linen, bright and pure, as you're told in verse 8 at the end, in sort of a parenthetical statement, this fine linen, bright and pure is the righteous deeds of the saints. So our righteousness, the righteousness that adorns our lives, is both something that we do to ready ourselves for our bride, and it's also a gift from the bride, from the bridegroom to the bride. It's also both something we do, it's grace, it is, the, it is salvation given to us as free gift, but it's a salvation that we work out with fear and trembling. You see both the grace of God here giving us the righteousness of Christ, but we participate, we cooperate with that gift, with that grace, as we ready ourselves for the bridegroom. A beautiful image here. Let me go over it one more time. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, given to her, gifted to her to clothe herself with the fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And of course, uh, the linen symbolizes the, the brilliance, the brightness, the whiteness, the purity of the saints that have now been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Hold on to this because you're going you're gonna to see another reference to the fine linen of the righteous saints here in chapter 19. So we're here celebrating the announcement of the marriage of the Lamb. And the bride is going to be brought to the bridegroom. That's another way of saying the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ into human history at the end of the age. Verse 9, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited or called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. This is the fourth of the seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. A beatitude is where God is declaring you someone blessed, blessed. And this beatitude says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb, you have to hear the invitation. You have to hear the call. That is the invitation to life in Christ, and you have to accept that invitation to life in Christ. That is accepting the invitation to the marriage supper. That is accepting the invitation to make ourselves ready for the bridegroom. It is accepting the invitation to receive the gift 
of the clothing, the fine linen, bright and pure, which is the righteousness of the saints, to accept the gift of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper, the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's a wonderful text, wonderful text. So you see uh, how the image of the return of Christ is being presented here in chapter 19. Uh, The text goes on with the second part of verse 9, chapter 19. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Uh, God is faithful. God cannot lie. Unlike the empty promises and the lies that the spirit and the powers and principalities of this world offers to us, God cannot lie. So what we hear from God, the promises of God, these are the true words of God we're told in verse 9. Verse 10, notice what John does here. John is being very transparent at this point. John the Revelator is making sure that uh, we, we see how he responds and we learn something about how he responds. Verse 10, John says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. The angel, notice the angel that's speaking, the, the host of heaven, the, the, the one from heaven who's speaking, says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But of course this angel says to John, You must not do that. In the Greek there is very emphatic. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant or fellow slave with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And that's pretty much the theme of the verse of Revelation. Worship God, worship God only. Make sure you know who's on the throne. Make sure you are prostrating yourself before the throne. Worship God and worship the true God in true worship only. Don't worship other gods. Don't be uh, pulled away into idolatry. Don't be seduced by the great harlot of this world that pulls us away from uh, our God and our relationship with God. So here when when John receives this invitation to the marriage supper, to the marriage feast from this angel, John is so overwhelmed that he falls down to worship the angel. And he's scolded by the angel. We should never worship angels. We should never worship anyone else. Uh, angels are... Our, our creations, like we are in the book of Hebrews, we're told they're ministering spirits to us, the people of Jesus Christ. So we actually are exalted above the angels. So that's a, another reason why we would never worship angels. We're exalted above the angels. We worship God and God alone. You must not do that, the angel says to John. I am a fellow servant or slave, doulos, with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus, to the witness of Jesus. Worship God is the commandment. And then this section uh, ends at the end of verse 10 by saying, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Or you could translate that, For the testimony of Jesus, the witness of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy that inspires the prophets. Uh, True prophets are revealing the word of God through Christ to us in the world. So it is the witness of Jesus that speaks through the prophets. It is the witness of Jesus to which the prophets bear witness. 
So for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We can trust this. We can trust this more than we trust our feelings, more than we trust our emotions, more than we trust what our circumstances are doing to us in life. So here in the first ten verses of chapter 19, we see the exaltation, the rejoicing in heaven over the destruction of the kingdoms of this world as now the kingdoms of this world are about to become the kingdom of our God and His Christ. And then you hear heaven announcing that the marriage supper of the Lamb is about to come. And then as a result of the marriage supper of the Lamb about to come, uh, and that announcement, John is so overwhelmed, he tries to worship the angel, heaven that's making this announcement, and he's told to not do that. We worship God, and we worship God only. So the marriage supper of the Lamb is announced. We won't really see the marriage supper of the Lamb, the consummation of the intimacy, the union between Jesus Christ and His church, until we get to verses, uh, to chapter, chapters 21 and 22. So it's announced here. It doesn't take place yet. It's coming. It's announced here. One of the things we in the Christian community need to remember when we read this text here about the marriage supper of the Lamb, is that uh, every Lord's Supper, every Eucharist, every Holy Communion is an anticipation of this final eschatological supper, this marriage supper of the Lamb in the kingdom, when the church and our Savior, our Lord, comes together in the intimacy that will be an eternal, everlasting intimacy. So every time we share the Lord's Supper together, we are anticipating this supper to which we will be um, part of one of these days. We've been invited to this supper in Christ. We've been betrothed to Christ. Christ, at this point in history, still preparing a place for us. But then the call will come one day when the bridegroom will come for the bride and we will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb and our union, our intimacy will be perfect and will be complete. So this this is the themes in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Uh, at verse 11 and following in chapter 19, uh, we actually see the return of Christ. So we'll hold that for the next session. And uh, thank you for joining us in this time of study. I hope that uh, this encourages you. I hope that keep, this helps all of us stay focused on worshiping the true and living God. I hope all this helps us stay focused on what we're doing to make ourselves ready uh, as the bride of Christ, to receive Christ in his fullness one day when our wedding takes place. Thank you.